All right, there we go. Sorry about that. So I just like to watch them frantically try to figure out what's going wrong back there. And, uh, it, was, it was all me, sorry about that. But uh, it's hard to believe, but it was actually 20 years ago that Iraq invaded Kuwait and captured that. And George H.W. Bush was president at the time. And so he sent out a call across the world, actually, to come to the defense of Kuwait. And he wanted to put together these, uh, this uh, group to turn back the intentions of Saddam Hussein and the Iraqis. And he gathered over 30 people, or not 30 people, but 30 countries to actually form what he called the Coalition of the Willing. Now, in actuality, the United States sent military in Australia, in Poland, and Great Britain. So only four of those 30 countries actually sent military that day. So it really wasn't much of a coalition. But it was still a, a battle where different countries and different groups came together. Well, we're going to be looking at a story this morning that was actually a coalition of the willing. And it's, about, it's a poem, it's about a military campaign, and you can find it in Judges chapter 5. And we're going to be looking at both Judges 4 and 5, so <clears throat> you might live yourself enough flexibility to get back and forth there. But this is something that was done way back in antiquity, back when the, the Bible was being written, is that when there was a, a big battle or a big campaign, at the end of it, somebody would sit down and memorialize or commemorate it by writing a poem. And sometimes that poem was just so that you wouldn't forget what happened during that battle because history then wasn't passed on uh, in written form. It, it was passed on orally. And so to put it into a poetic uh, framework, that would be more memorable so that could be passed on from generation to generation. And sometimes it was, it was written just so that we wouldn't lose the history of it. And sometimes these poems were actually written so that the uh, hero of the story could be uh, lifted up a little bit, or sometimes they were even written to, to twist the story or to slant the story a little bit, where even if the battle didn't go so good, the, the uh, leader would still be lifted up here in this poem. And so as it passed on from generation to generation, people would kind of forget the details, and they'd still remember the, you know, the most supreme leader that led them into battle, even though they might have lost. But the poem made it sound like it was going well. Well, this is actually a poem that we're looking at today that was in this genre. It's not, a, it's not falsified in any way like those sometimes were. But it was a military um, event that was being uh, commemorated. And it's the story of Israel going into conflict with the nation of Canaan and their leader by the name of Sisera. And oddly, this poem is a retelling of a story that happens in the chapter before. And so like we get back-to-back -back story, the same story back-to-back. -back. The first time we see it in chapter 4 is a narrative, and the second time we see it in chapter 5, it is actually in poetic form. And again, it would have been put into this form so that it could be more memorable for people who are hearing it. But my question is, why does it get put in there twice? Because this is the Bible. And so was it just put in there because the, the historian who's writing the book of Judges is like, here's this great story. You know what? Somebody wrote this poem about it. Let's just go ahead and stick this in here with it. Or is it more that God's like, you know what? There's a really important point, a really important truth here that I want you to get in this story. And in case you miss it, 
we're going to go ahead and we're going to stick this poem right behind it, and it will reinforce this point if you miss it. And I think there's some truth to that second thing. So when we look at this story, we don't just need to want to... I don't know what kind of sentence that was. We don't just want to look at it like, oh, that's a nice story. We want to look at it and say, what are we supposed to be learning from this story? And in case you miss it, good news, we've got this poem to, start, uh, to help drive home the point. So let me look at verse number 1 of chapter 5. And this is the introduction to the poem that follows the story. We'll go back to the story in a minute. On that day, Deborah and Barak, son of Ahinoam, sang this song. So they're going to sing this poem, so it becomes a song. And here's what it says. When the princes in Israel take the lead, when the people, uh, uh, when the people willingly offer themselves, praise the Lord. And this introduces the poem, but it actually gives the theme of the, both the story and of the poem. And it's right there in black and white. And if you miss it, it'll show up again in verse number 9. But let me reread a phrase here. It says, when the princes in Israel take the lead. Some translations say it this way, when the leaders lead. If you went back to the Hebrew, you can actually read it this way. When the locks of hair grow long in Israel. What does that mean? Well, it takes us back to the days, especially Old Testament days, of when somebody made a vow or a commitment to, to show that they were really serious about it, they would let their hair grow out. Uh, the Nazarite vow may be a term that you're familiar with. But the idea is, when the locks of hair, it's like we've made a commitment that's so strong that we're going to let our hair grow out to represent it. And so this poem is saying, when, or you could read it this way, when people dedicate themselves, when they really willingly commit themselves, when people step up, well, praise God. Because something good is going to happen. But the key word in here, I believe, is the word willingly. And so this is really a poem about the coalition of the willing. In verse number 9, we see it again. My heart is with Israel's princes, with the willing volunteers among the people. Praise the Lord. So this is a story and this is a poem with the theme of willingness. And I think that maybe we have this poem so that we don't miss that idea. Now, let's just talk about willingness for a second here. This is a word we're very familiar with. This is a word that we use actually a lot and probably don't even think about this very much. But most of us would describe ourselves as, as pretty willing. I'm a pretty willing person. You know, I'm willing to help out. I, I'm willing to put in a good word for somebody. I, I'm willing to do what I've been asked to do. I'm, I'm willing, you know, sometimes we say this about people, you know, that person's willing to give somebody the shirt off his back. Or, you know, I'm willing to, to give somebody a second chance, or I'm willing to accept an apology. I'm even willing to make an apology. I'm willing, I'm willing, I'm willing, I'm willing. I'm a pretty willing person. At the same time, we're not very willing. And we're unwilling sometimes to, to speak up in a situation because we're not sure if it will be appreciated if we speak up. Or we're unwilling to get involved in some injustice that's going on around us. Or we're maybe unwilling to give something the full 100% effort, and we just kind of hold a little bit back. Sometimes we're unwilling to do something differently from the way that we've always been doing it. Because change is hard. Sometimes we're unwilling to listen to another point of view. Or always we're unwilling to 
embarrass ourselves. We'd never want to risk that, would we? And we have all of these different ways that we are unwilling to. Well, willing and unwilling are just the, the opposite sides of the same coin. But as we talk about willingness in this story, we want to talk about it as a positive. So are, are you willing to do what you should do? But when we talk about willing, I think we need to see it on a continuum. So we could start over here with unwilling, all the way over here to willing. In just about any situation in life, we find ourselves somewhere on that line. Now, every once in a while, we're completely willing, but generally speaking, we're partially willing. Sometimes we're completely unwilling, but it just changes on the issue, okay? So I'll give you a really bad example here, okay? Like, you know what? Are, are you willing to be healthy? Yes, I'm willing to be healthy. Okay, that's going to require exercise. Oh, I'm maybe not that willing. And so we slide up and down that, you know? Um, where do you want to eat tonight? I'll eat anywhere. I'm willing to eat anywhere. Oh, how about if we go here? Except there. And so we slide up and down this continuum of willingness. But willingness is simply a choice for the good. As we're looking at it today, so when we talk about willingness, it's like I am, of my own volition here, choosing to do the right thing or the, or the good thing in this situation. So let's look at this story here. And I'm going to tell it more than read it because we want to read the story more than tell, or the poem rather, more than tell it. But if we go all the way back into the history of Israel, they had gone down into Egypt. They had become slaves in, Israel, or in Egypt for 400 years. Moses eventually led them out of slavery. That's where they went through the Red Sea. That's where they went to Sinai. That's where they got the Ten Commands. But they didn't go into the Promised Land, which was Canaan. Because of their doubt. So they wandered around in this wilderness for 40 years. And finally, Joshua steps on the scene. And Joshua leads them into the promised land, which is the land of Canaan. And that's who our battle is against, the Canaanites here today. But when they moved into the land of Canaan, there were 12 tribes of Israel. And they all settled in different places. And so they were loosely connected in, in that they were all part, they were all Israelites. But there was no, like, central government. In fact, there was pretty much no government whatsoever, and it was a little bit of the wild, wild west, uh, the early version of that in Israel at that time. And in fact, it says in Judges chapter 17, verse number 6, every man did as he saw fit. So everybody was just basically his own boss. You know, you just do whatever you feel like doing. And if that bangs into somebody else, well, that's too bad. And it just got kind of crazy. And what else happened? Because there was not good leadership there, the people would eventually forget about God. And they'd be off doing their own thing, and they wouldn't be paying any attention to God, not even thinking about God. And God would be like, oh, I'm going to have to do something here. And so God would use the enemies that surrounded the Israelites, and those enemies would come in and oppress the Israelites, and it would get so bad that the people would be like, okay, God, we need you, you know, uncle, please come back into the story here and, and rescue us and deliver us. And so God would be like, okay, I finally have your attention, and he would come in and rescue them, and everything would be good, and then that leader that he rose up would, uh, would, would, pass off the scene, and the people would go back to the same old ways of just doing their own thing, forgetting God, and God's like, ah, I'm going to have to send in these outside country, uh, 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 nations again. And so we keep going through this cycle where we sin, God sends 
discipline, we repent, and God sends a person, which we call, or was called here, a judge. And so what we, by the time we get to this chapter, this, this cycle here has repeated itself three times. We've had Othniel, we've had Ehud, we've had Shamgar, and now we get to the next judge. And then after that, we have some of the more familiar judges. Uh, we have we have the likes of Gideon, and we have Jephthah, and we have um, Samson, and we have Samuel. All told, there were about 12 judges altogether. Some of them are better known than the others. So let's go back, though, and pick up where this story is. The people have just come to another place where they're like, ugh. And the Canaanites are just oppressing them. It's been going on for 20 years, and they're finally to the place like, okay, God, we're sorry. We'll follow you. And God's like, okay, I'm going to send somebody to help you. Okay, that's where we are if we go back to chapter 4, verse number 1. And again, the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord, now that Ehud was dead. He was a, a prior judge. And so the Lord sold them into the hands of Jabin, uh, the king of Canaan, who reigned in Hazor. Sisera, the commander of Jabin's army, was based in Harasheth Hagogim, because he had 900 chariots fitted with iron, and it cruelly oppressed the Israelites for 20 years. They cried to the Lord for help. And 900 chariots in that day would be like having 900 armored tanks. In today's day, I mean, that was big-time weaponry, big-time uh, um, cavalry. But they had overwhelming military superiority. And so the Israelites were like, what do we do? Oh, let's go back and we'll call to God and see if he brings us some help. So God answers that, verse number 4. Now Deborah. A prophet, the wife of Lapidoth, was leading Israel at that time. She held court under the palm of Deborah between Ramah and Bethel in the hill country of Ephraim. And the Israelites went up to have their disputes decided. But this time it's a little bit different. Because the judge is a woman. And we've never seen that before and we're never going to see that again and so it's, it's a bit unusual. She's the first and the only woman judge, and she's actually serving in her judge role judicially like a one-man or one-woman Supreme Court. She was the original Sandra Day O'Connor right there. And the people would come to her, and, and, and she would help them settle issues between them. But it's not just that she's a woman. It's actually that she's a prophet as well. So she wasn't just the civil leader of Israel at this time. She was also the spiritual leader of Israel at this time. And she is a prophet. That means that she's hearing from God and she's speaking from God. Now, that doesn't make her unique as a woman in the Old Testament. Miriam, we're told, was a, was a prophet as well. Isaiah's wife was called a prophet. And there's another prophet called Huldah that we see in the story there. But she is a prophet and a judge. What makes her unique in that role is that there's only one other person, there's only one other judge who held both those positions, and that was the judge of Samuel. And so all the rest of the judges that we see were not necessarily the spiritual leaders, certainly not prophets in Israel. And then the other thing, she is also a wife. She's married. We're told that. She possibly has children. We're not sure. There's a verse that comes up later on. It maybe hints at that. We don't really know. But here's what happens. God raises up Deborah to serve as the judge and prophet in, in Israel. The people are crying out for help. And God says, okay, Deborah, here we go. I want you 
to grab Barak, who's the head of the army, and I want him to muster the army, and I want him to go to war with the Canaanites, and I will give you the victory. That's God speaking to Deborah. Pass the word on here to Barak. So Deborah goes to, uh, um, that's in verses 6 and 7. Deborah goes to Barak and says, hey, I need you to go into battle here against these Canaanites. And Barak, in verse number 8, objects. And he says this, I'm only going to battle if you go with me. And her response is, okay. And then she gives a prophecy. She says this, when the battle is over, and I'm paraphrasing here, when the battle is over, you're not going to get credit as the military leader of this battle. The credit's going to go to a woman. And Barak, I think, is like, okay, fine, but you're going with me, right? And so Barak musters the army. They go into battle against Sisera and his 900 chariots. And we get down to verse number 15. And it tells us that God routes the Canaanites. Sisera's army abandons their chariots, and they all run away, including Sisera himself. But it doesn't really tell us how this happened. It just tells us that it did. But we have a poem, so good news, okay? Anyhow, Sisera, he's on the run, too, with everybody else. And he comes to the tent of this woman named Jael. And she is not an Israelite. She's a Kenite, so she's kind of a neutral party in this whole story. And he's tired, and he's got the Israelite army behind him, and he's like, hey, can you hide me? And she's like, yeah, come on in here. And so she sits him down and gives him something to eat and something to drink, and he takes a nap. And while he's taking a nap, she gets out, probably a wooden spike and a hammer, and literally nails his head to the ground and kills him. About that time, Barak shows up, but by then... The enemy is already dead, and the prophecy that Deborah made has been fulfilled. And we're all assuming that, oh, Deborah is going to get the credit here. No, it's Jael who's the woman who gets the credit here, just like her prophecy foretold. And she becomes the hero of the story. And Israel is delivered, and that's the end of the story. Except for this poem that follows it. And this poem actually gives us some details, like how it was that God actually routed the enemy. So what I want to do this morning, for the rest of our time here, is I want to look at this poem, which is really just an exclamation point for this story. And I want to look at this because it brings us back to this theme of this poem, which is willingness. And what I want to do is I want to look at the key characters in this story and, and see how they demonstrated, or maybe didn't demonstrate, this idea of willingness. So let's read here. We're going to pick up in verse number three. We already looked at verses number one and two. Hear this, you kings. Listen, you rulers. I, even I, will sing to the Lord. I will praise the Lord, the God of Israel, in song. Deborah with Barak, they're writing this song. When you, Lord, went up from Seir, when you marched from the land of Edom, the earth shook, the heavens poured, the clouds poured down water, the mountains quake before the Lord, the one of Sinai, before the Lord, the God of Israel. And what is she doing here? There's actually two things. But the main thing she's saying is this is a poem about what God did for us. And she's establishing right out of the gate, this is a poem not about Deborah. This is a poem not about Barak. This is a poem about God. But then she also does a little bit of foreshadowing. Because she says, just like God has provided in the past, 
Just like God protected and helped his people in the past, he's going to do the same thing. And he actually did the same thing in our story here. So she refers back to the wilderness. But the point is what? What God has done before, he's going to do it again. And what she's talking about, we're going to read about it in a minute, is the deliverance is going to be through a storm. Somehow God is going to send a storm, or earthquake, whatever, is going to send a storm, and that's going to be what actually happens here. But the point is that the rest of this poem doesn't happen without God. So we get into verse number 6. Now we're going to get into details. In the days of Shamgar, the son of Anath, in the days of jail, different jail, by the way, the highways were abandoned. Travelers took to winding paths. Villagers in Israel would not fight. They held back until I, Deborah, arose, until I arose, a mother in Israel. In other words, she's saying things have gotten so bad here that people have to sneak out when they want to go somewhere because they're so afraid of the Canaanites. So, you know, we go out at dark or we go out or we take the back roads where nobody will notice us. That's how bad things were gone until I arose, a mother in Israel, and she's recounting the way things were until she stepped up. Now, that sounds a little self-serving, you know, Deborah, until I stepped up. It's how these poems were written, these ancient military poems. And she started it by saying, hey, this is about God. So she's just telling it in, this, in the same way. But she's the first character that we see show up in this poem, Deborah. Let me read the next couple of verses here. Verse number 8. God chose new leaders when war came to the city gates, but not a shield or spear was seen among the 40,000 in Israel. In other words, we're being oppressed by all these people, and we really have no military might. Of, we're having trouble finding shields and spears here. But... My heart is with Israel's princes, with the willing volunteers among the people. Praise the Lord. So we're back to this idea of willingness and God raising up willing people. But the question I have is why did God choose Deborah to be the leader? What do you think? It doesn't actually tell us. It seems a little bit like an irregular choice. We have one woman judge. That's the only one that we ever have. Was it then maybe because there were no men qualified to lead in Israel? Problem is, the story never says that, and the story never suggests that. And to say that you had to be a qualified man would have ruled out pretty much Gideon, who comes later, would have probably ruled out Jephthah. Definitely would have ruled out Samson. So she's not chosen, you know, in, in response to that, as near as we can tell, in, unless we get to those guys and, and it's really, really bad. Was it then because she was such a great moral person? Well, nothing says that either. She was obviously respected. She was obviously a spiritual person. I mean, God's speaking to her and God's speaking through her. So why? I don't know. There's nothing, though, in this text, which is fascinating to me, there's nothing in this text that says that this extraordinary situation seemed unusual to these people. So she's the judge. It's not like everybody's like, oh, how'd you become judge? It's just like, that's how it is. And for some reason, God just went there and said, this is how we're going to do it. And everybody seems to be fine with it. And no big 
point is even made in the story about the fact that Deborah is a woman, other than the fact that she was absolutely a woman. So why, we don't know. We just know this. We know that God chose her. But I wonder, let me just suggest this to you, when we talk about the theme of this poem, is maybe the reason that God chose her because she was willing more than anything else? I mean, think about the people that God chose in the past. I mean, he chose people like Peter. Peter was a mess. He chose people like Paul. That's, a, that's even worse. He chose people like Jacob. Not a, a real, you know, shiny example of anything. What is it that God finds and sees in people? Maybe, in this case at least, maybe it's the idea of willingness. When leaders lead, when people willingly step up to the roles that they have been offered. And I wonder if maybe, I'm just throwing this out here, I'm wondering if it's like, why did God pick hers? Because he knew if he picked her, she'd say, okay. And that may have been as much as what it was because she's obviously willing to make herself available. When leaders lead, when people willingly step up into the needs that they see, when they willingly accept roles that might be unfamiliar or even unconventional, when people willingly make themselves available, when people willingly take risks, when people willingly go first, when people willingly support those around us, her willingness, whatever it was, she seems to be willing. Even when Barak says, hey, I'm not going unless you go into battle. She's like, well, you know, I don't think she was a warrior, but it's like, okay, here we go. Willing, willing, willing. So what do we learn about willingness from the life of Deborah here? I think it's this. Maybe more than anything else, God chooses and uses willing people. If you're available, then God can use you because here's the good news. God doesn't need you to be perfect before he can use you. We'd all be disqualified. God says, can you be available? And in the process of me using you, you know what I'll do? I'll change you. I'll mature you. I'll grow you. I'll teach you. And for us, one of the ways that he changes us is when we say, okay, God, I'm willing. Whatever it is you're asking of me, this may sound difficult. This may sound uncomfortable. Man, I've never tried this before. You want me to do this? Okay. I think you got the wrong person maybe, God, but I'm willing. And God says, okay, let's go. And as we go, then God grows us to fit the task that we've been willing to step into. And that can be in anything. That, that can be in like, okay, God, I, I'm going to make myself willing to give you and trust you with my time. I'm going to make you, uh, I'm going to be willing to trust you with, with, with my resources. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to be willing to trust you and, and I'm going to try this, this serving in this way. I, I'm going to be willing to trust you and, and I'm going to share my faith in this way. I don't think I'm necessarily the person for the job, but I'm willing. Let's see what God does. It's also interesting to me that when we have a description of Deborah here in this verse, of all the ways that we could have described her, how is she described? The mother of Israel. That's really interesting to me because I think it suggests 
that good leadership has a lot of motherly aspects to it as well. And I think sometimes we forget that, but she seemed to be fine with being called the mother in, it could have been mother in Israel, like she had kids, but I think it's probably mother of Israel, and both translations are possible. It's like, you know what? I'm the mother here, and these are my kids, and don't mess with my kids. You know, I'm, I'm married to a mother and uh, three adult kids. Don't mess with her kids, okay? You don't want to go there. And I wonder if Deborah's like, you know what? Here's how I'm going to describe myself. I'm going to describe myself as a mother. That's how I lead. And I think that's just a great example uh, of leadership here in this situation. So verse number 12, the call then of the poem is, wake up, wake up, Deborah, wake up, wake up, break out in song, arise, Barak. And so there's a call to action here, but it brings the second character into play, and that's Barak. You can actually go back and reread chapter 4 if you want to know more about him. But Barak was the guy who was offered the lead role, but he hesitated as we all do. Why? Probably fear. It might have been a lack of trust. Yeah, I know God said that to you, Deborah, but he didn't really say it to me. So maybe if you want to go with me, maybe that's proof that you really heard. I don't know. Maybe it's because he was negatively forecasting. You know what? There's 900 chariots there. That's not going to go well. I don't think so. We don't know why he hesitates, but he certainly hesitates. And boy, I can relate to this. Because this idea of willingness, when God comes and says, I want you to do this, are you willing to do this, Brent? Yeah, I'm willing to do this, I'm willing to do this, I'm willing to do this, but I have a few conditions here. And that's what's going on in the story. He has some conditions. And he's like, ah, I'm willing, but... Not completely. And it's where he goes to battle, but it's like, eh, the whole time here. And so we look at him and say, what do we learn about willingness from Barak? It's this, that limited willingness equals limited rewards. Limited willingness equals limited rewards. See, we've had this continuum of, of unwilling all the way over to willing. And, and we can be willing up to some point, And then it's like, nah, I'm not going any further there. Well, the reward was over here. You know what? Barak could have been the hero of the story. Instead, Jael's the hero of the story. Or say Deborah's even the hero of the story. But Barak's not. He, he got to win the victory. In fact, you can actually find him in Hebrews chapter 11. He shows up again. And he gets some acclaim there, but he sacrificed some of what he could have had because his willingness was limited. And so what we learn from him is on this continuum is however much you hesitate, you're going to pay the price for that. And we find, we find that ourselves even sometimes in life, right? When we give something a half-hearted effort, I mean, like, and I, just a, a simple example, like, the NFL, the big all-star game is the Pro Bowl, but nobody wants to play the Pro Bowl. Why? Because you only play halfway, and you're afraid if you play halfway, you're going to get hurt. That's how we trust God sometimes. And, and really, our willingness is just a reflection on our trust. Yeah, God, I know this. this is what you want me to do over here. How about if I go this far? And how much do we miss out on 
if we'd kept going. And so they're told in verse number 12 to, to go into to battle there. In verse number 13, the remnant of, of the nobles came down. The people of the Lord came down against the mighty. Some came from Ephraim. So the tribe of Ephraim shows up. Now we're getting into the coalition. Then we see some that come from Benjamin. Uh, was with the people who followed you. From Maker, which is another name for Manasseh. Captains came down. From Zebulun, those who bear a commander's staff. And then we see also in, uh, in verse number 18, the tribe of Naphtali comes down. The princes of Issachar were with Deborah. And so we list, I think, a half dozen there of the tribes. When they're summoned to battle, they show up and say, let's go. And so the third character that we see here is actually not a person. It's a group. It's the 12 tribes. And a call goes out, and they, they get together, and this is like the honor roll here. Every group that responds, but let's keep reading. End of verse 15. In the districts of Reuben, there was much searching of heart. Why did you stay among the sheep pens to hear the whistling for the flocks? In the districts of Reuben, there is much searching of heart. Gilead stayed behind the Jordan. And Dan, why did he linger by the ships? Asher remained on the coast and stayed in his coves. Now, the people of Zebulun, they risked their very lives. So did Naphtali on the terrace fields. So some willingly accepted the challenge. And others were unwilling. And they're asked, why are you unwilling? But we're never given an answer here. But what do we learn about willingness from this group of people? Third thing here is willingness is a matter of heart, not circumstances. Willingness is a matter of heart, not circumstances. They all were facing the same circumstances. Some of them, yeah, we're in. And others, nope, we're not. But sometimes we have this idea that, you know what, I, I would be willing. God, whatever it is that you want me to do, I'd be willing when, and we have this thing that needs to play out. You know, when I have more time. You know, when I don't have as many things going on as I have going on right now, well, then I could. And we have all these, you know, check back with me later, okay? No, willingness is like, okay, what do you need? We're in. Not uh, I don't know. It's a matter of heart, not circumstances. Secondly, we can learn from this group is that your willingness or your lack thereof has a significant impact of other people. Now, they managed to win the battle without them, but that could have been a problem. And what was even more dangerous here was the fact that they could have discouraged those who were going, like, why are we fighting and they're back here doing nothing? And we see this in group situations sometimes. You know, kids, you, you worked on your, your homework, your, your group project. Like, don't you love that when the teacher says, okay, we're going to do a group project. You're like, oh, great. You know, there are you know, four people in our group. There will be one kid who does nothing, guaranteed, and then one person who feels guilty if it doesn't get done and does everything. Well, this is the same risk that we find. And that's the same risk that we can even find in a church or in, in a small group or whatever. Where, where we get together, the risk is the damage that we can do to other people when we are not willing ourselves. So we go and read on here. And verse number 19 tells us, here's what happened in the battle. The kings came. They fought. They fought by the waters of Megiddo. 
And then it says in verse number 20, the heavens, uh, from the heavens the stars fought. From their courses they fought against Sisera. The river Kishon swept them away, the age-old river, the Kishon. And the stars did not come and fight. It's figurative language here in poetry. What actually happened is evidently there is a huge storm, like major rainstorm. And so it felt like the heavens were actually fighting for the Israelites because the rains came down and the rains came down and the rains came down and the river that they were fighting alongside there swelled and swelled and eventually flooded. And basically it turned the entire property, as near as we could tell, into a quagmire of mud, which is really hard to get your chariot through. And so God sent this huge storm, and he sent this mud, and he used that. He intervenes to win the battle here. And it's interesting to note that the source of the security for all of those Canaanites became actually their downfall. Their chariots actually became a problem to them. Well, we finish up here with reading Verse number 24, we have one more character in this story here about willingness. So we've seen the willingness of Deborah, of Barak, of the 12 tribes, the willingness of Jael. Verse number 24, most blessed of women be Jael, the wife of Heber the Kenite, most blessed of twin dwelling women. Sisera asked for water, she gave him milk. In a bowl for, fit for nobles, she brought him curdled milk. Then her hand reached for the tent peg, her right hand for the workman's hammer. She struck Sisera, she crushed his head, she shattered and pierced his temple. At her feet, he sank, he fell, there he lay. At her feet, he sank, he fell, where he sank, there he fell, dead. And so our fourth character in the story is Jael, who simply recognized an opportunity. She was a neutral party here, politically, and she really didn't have to do anything. And even the tent culture of the day, and the Kenites were, were nomadic people, that culture of the day, if the enemy, had come, or if Sisera had come in and asked for, for respite there, and she'd given it to him, the Israelites would have said, that's fine. That kind of fits the culture and, and what's expected. But she sees the opportunity here and, 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 and maybe sees the work of God, or maybe she has that relationship with God. It doesn't really say but instead of just saying, this is not my worry, this is not my business, everybody, this is somebody else's problem, you know, not my monkey, not my circus, right? She said, you know what? He's here, and he's evil, and he's leading evil, and you know what? It's my opportunity, my responsibility, whatever word you want to pick, to actually act here. And so what do we learn about willingness? Willingness seeks opportunity, it doesn't wait for invitation. It seeks opportunity, it doesn't wait for invitation. It says, hey, what can I do? How, how can I jump in? Is, is there something that here, is there a role I can fill? It doesn't even wait to say for somebody to say, hey, could you, we're really short here. Could, could you fill in in this situation? All right. It's like, no, it's willing to say what, what needs to be done. Where's the opportunity? And it seizes the moment, and that's the heart of willingness. And I think, by the way, that opportunities often come the way of willing people. And I wonder if that's why the opportunity, going full circle here, for Deborah came in the first place. Is guys like here? I have a willing person. Well, let me just conclude and, and wrap this up with a couple of questions here this morning. We're talking about the coalition of the willing. The 
The coalition of the willing in this story would have been Deborah, Barak, some of the tribes of Israel, not all of them, and then also Jael. But what did God do when the coalition, when everybody got willing? Well, you can read the very end of the chapter there, verse number 5. What's the last line? Then the land had rest for 40 years. And I just throw this question out here. What do you think God could do if the coalition of the willing were this church? Where everybody's like, whatever, God, I'm in. What, what needs to be done? I'm in. Oh, we're working on that? Oh, I'm in. Or, you know what, God's showing me this here? Oh, I'm in. What could happen if we became the coalition of the willing? But the only way to answer that question is to answer this question, each of us. How willing am I? How willing am I to serve? How willing am I to give? How willing am I to get outside of my comfort zone? How willing am I to sacrifice? How willing am I to share my faith? How willing am I to do the hard thing even though it's the hard thing? How willing am I to trust God even when it's hard to trust God? How willing am I? See, we have this continuum. We have unwillingness all the way here to willingness. And I might even give you a different word for unwillingness, just to throw it in here right at the end. How about weariness? I don't know. But if we put this weariness, and maybe that fits better, because I don't know any, hopefully nobody in here is saying, I don't care what God says. But maybe we look at this, all the way over here to, yeah. Where are you? On that Continuum. Can you trust God enough to commit? Can you trust God enough to grow your hair long? Can you trust God enough to seize the opportunities? Can you trust God enough to be part of the coalition of the willing? Let's pray. Dear God, thank you so much for this story. What a challenge and inspiration it is. A story that gets repeated because I think maybe you wanted to make a point about willingness. And God, I think it's easy to say that I'm willing, but then when you come, the question is, am I really willing? And as we pause for a moment to reflect this morning, That's the question. How willing are you? Are you willing to say, okay, God, whatever you show me, I'll do that. Whatever it is I'm supposed to, whatever opportunity I'm supposed to seize, I'm going to stop making excuses. I'm going to seize that. Whatever the need here is that that I've kind of been hesitant, like, like count me in. Where do you need to settle the issue of willingness with God? Maybe he's been asking you to to make a commitment that you've been hesitant. I don't know, but the Spirit does, and he speaks to us. And if you're here this morning and you're not a Christ follower, this whole faith thing's a little bit of a mystery to you. Part of it is this willingness. 
this willingness to trust God enough to say, okay, I'll follow you. Enough to trust Jesus, say, I'll follow you, I'll trust that what you did on the cross for my sins was enough. doesn't need to be me, you did enough. You can forgive me, you can come into my life, you can change it, but you have to be willing to follow Christ. If you have questions about that, I'd love to talk to you about that, but you can start that relationship with Jesus Christ this morning. Simple conversation between you and God. I'm willing, I'm willing to trust you. God, give us willing hearts, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen.